may remember in the fall of last year we did a series entitled Elephants in the Church. There was one lesson in that series we didn't get to, and the reason why is we had bad weather the last Sunday of the year, and so I thought about that lesson and bringing it up at the appropriate time, and since we talked about mothers this morning, I thought maybe this is as good a time as any, and that lesson is to be on women and their role within the church. Seems to be an elephant in the church today, or at least a hot topic in the church today. And so I want to discuss that a little bit uh, tonight, maybe get some clarity on that issue. You know, in his book, Good to Great, author Jim Collins compares a business to a bus and a leader as a bus driver. Here's an excerpt from the book. He says, you are a bus driver. The bus, your company, is at a standstill, and it's your job to get it going. You have to decide where you're going, how you're going to get there, and who's going with you. Most people assume that great bus drivers immediately start the journey by announcing to the people on the bus where they're going, by setting a new direction or by articulating a fresh corporate vision. In fact, leaders of companies that go from good to great start not with where, but with who. They start by getting the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus, and the right people in the right seats, and they stick with that discipline. First the people, then the direction, no matter how dire the circumstances. Now, according to Collins, having a successful business is about getting the right people on the bus. It's about getting the right people in the right seats on the bus. And I think this is what God does in the church as well. I think this is how God operated throughout Scripture, and we see this is how He operates within the church as well, putting the right people in the right seats. Remember what Paul wrote in Galatians 3.28? There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now think of the context here and think about how the people hearing this letter read for the first time, would have responded. The Galatian Christians would have most likely responded with a, say what? Could you repeat that? Because surely you're speaking in jest, Paul. Because to the Jewish Christians, to people coming from the Jewish faith, there was not equal standing with the Gentiles. There was no such thing as there is neither Jew nor Greek. The idea that a slave man and a free man or a slave and a master could be on the same level, that, that was unheard of. But what might have been even more confounding is the fact that men and women had the same status in the kingdom. I mean, surely Paul was kidding when he said that. But we see this in Scripture. Philip's daughter had the gift of prophecy. Priscilla and her husband Aquila both taught Apollos in a more accurate way. In Titus 2, 3 through 5, we see that the older women were to teach the younger women. And we see all these roles play out with men in Scripture as well, don't we? Let me ask you this. Do you want equality here at Oldham Lane? Hopefully you're shaking your head yes. Do you want equality here at Oldham Lane? Every Tuesday, the ladies here at Oldham Lane get together for Bible study. Surely that's a good thing. 
as they swap knowledge, as they talk about different things concerning the, the, the scriptures, that's a good thing. We should desire for our women to have the most biblical knowledge possible. Do you realize that women can teach the vast majority of our congregation? You realize that? I mean, when you consider women and children, women can teach the vast majority of our congregation. I mean, that's over half our congregation, isn't it? Women and children. Do you want the women teaching our children to have a vast knowledge of the Bible? I do. I hope you do as well. Again, you should be shaking your head. We should want equality there. We should want our women to have a vast knowledge of the scriptures if they're going to be doing a lot of the educating. There's a young man who attended, I believe it was Southwest Bible Institute. Don't quote me on that, but he was trying to garner support, and so he sent out over 100 letters to folks trying to get support so he can go there and study the Bible. He got enough support. A few years later, his sister sent letters out because she wanted to go there and gain more Bible knowledge. She didn't want to preach or anything. She just wanted to go and gain more Bible knowledge. She didn't receive any responses from her 260 letters except for one that said no. So what are we saying here? It's okay for our men to gain Bible knowledge, but we don't want our women to have it. We don't want our women to be as knowledgeable in the Bible as our men. We've got to be careful here. When God handed out the spiritual gifts in the first century, he handed them out to women. Again, the gift of prophecy was given to, his, to Philip's four daughters. Were there restrictions on this gift? Absolutely, without question. But God wanted them to have knowledge. Phoebe was a servant in the church. Lydia was a wealthy woman who opened her home to host the church. Euodia and Syntyche, despite their quarreling, were women who, according to Paul, labored in the gospel. Women gave financial support to Jesus' ministry. Dorcas did a ton of good for the church, so much so that she was greatly missed when she passed away. We've had women that have worked tirelessly for the church. We have women right here at Oldham Lane that work tirelessly for the church. We've had women who work tirelessly for the church here at Oldham Lane that have passed away, and they are sorely missed. There are certain things that get dropped because they were doing so much. Where would Oldham Lane be without women? Where would the church be without women? Where would we be? I've been in different churches, and I've seen deacons and elders and how they function, and I'm sitting there going, you know what, if we put a woman in charge of that, she'd get it done. Deacon won't step up and do what he's supposed to do. You put a woman in charge, she get it done. Where would we be without the women, right? We are all equal in the kingdom of God. There is no debating that. But we don't share the same roles. And there's no debating that either. Equality does not imply that there are no role distinctions. Unfortunately, the discussion on the role of women within the church has been inaccurately portrayed as an issue about the worth of women or the competency of women or the social expectations of women. And anytime you hear a preacher preaching on the role of women within the church and he starts off by saying, I am embarrassed of how long the church has oppressed women, you know where he's going with that sermon. He's making it about an issue that's really not the issue. I don't know, 
ladies, you can tell me afterwards how many of you have been oppressed in the church. Hopefully none of you. You see, we've made the argument about something that it's not really about. It's smoke and mirrors because the issue isn't about the worth of women. The issue is not about their competency. It's not about the social expectations. The issue from a biblical standpoint is about role and responsibility. There are key seats that have to be filled within the church. Some of those seats are filled by men. Some of them are filled by women. But they're all equal and they're all important. Just different. All of God's people are valuable. Notice Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Everybody has a role. And everybody's role is important, whether you think it is or not. Something that Paul reiterates in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 31. Everyone has a responsibility, how everyone, however not everyone has the same responsibility. And we have to understand that. We all have equal standing, but equal standing is not the same thing as equal responsibility. Notice Numbers chapter 16. Starting at verse 1, it says, Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Koath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took action. And they rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation chosen in the assembly, men of renown. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Korah's argument was, what makes Moses and Aaron so special? We're all holy, we're all consecrated, we're all set apart by God. What's the big deal about Moses and Aaron? Of course, we know the big deal is that God set them apart. God chose them, and therefore, he didn't have to give an explanation, right? But Korah was responding in a way that was trying to tinker with the system. Verse 9, is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation, to minister to them, and that he has brought you near, Korah, and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you, and are you seeking for the priesthood also? Korah was a Levite which meant that he had a special privilege before God. And I don't see him complaining about other people not being allowed to be a priest. But yet he's complaining that Moses and Aaron are in a position of authority when he feels like he should be in that position, and so should anybody else, because what makes them so special, right? You see, Korah was actually speaking out, not just against the leadership of Moses, but against the leadership of God. And that didn't work out so well for him. You can read further in Numbers chapter 16 to see that the earth swallowed up these rebellious men because they weren't just speaking out against Moses' leadership, but against God's as well. But Korah was right about one thing. All of God's people were holy. He was right about that. They were all special to God. No doubt about that. But it did not follow that all of them could, therefore, perform the same duties, that all of them had the same seat on the bus. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 3, here's what Paul writes. He says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, 
And the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who, is ha who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or to have her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For the man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but, for woman, but woman for man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, we could spend a year or more dissecting this passage, and I don't want to do that tonight. I just want to highlight what Paul says here about the role distinctions between men and women. Notice verse 3 affirms that these role distinctions have no, absolutely nothing to do with worth or value. Now, you may not like the way Paul presents it, but it has nothing to do with worth or value. There are certain roles for men and certain roles for women, and believe it or not, they're not based on culture, because Paul tells us what they're based on. They're based on creation. In the creation order. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 and following, it says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam, and was it not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctify and sanctity with self-restraint. I want you to notice Paul's instruction concerning the adornment of women. It wasn't cultural. Consider his words in light of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3-4, through 4, where it reads, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Paul wasn't addressing something cultural when it came to the way women dressed in his day and age. And the fact that, that women were not to teach or exercise authority over a man was not cultural, uh, a, a cultural standard that was relegated to his time or his day and age. In fact, nothing that Paul addresses in 1 Timothy was cultural. And you know how we know this? Because he takes it back to the very beginning. Some things that he approaches in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 were cultural. And he even makes mention of that. But the overriding principle is this is based on creation, on who came first. In both of these passages, Paul is dealing with the role of women in the church, and a distinction is made between what they could do and what the men could do. And in each scenario, creation order is the grounds for that distinction. 
For whatever reason, God established leadership in the church and in the home with men. Does that mean that women don't play a vital role? Of course not. They play an absolute profound role and have a monumental task. Both are key seats on the bus. And I'm going to keep shouting this at the top of my lungs so that we make sure that we hear this, but this is not about essence or worth. That's not the issue. When Jesus confronted the Samaritan woman at the well, she was a woman and she was a Samaritan. Two big strikes against her. She was also very immoral. Three strikes against her. And yet Jesus treated her with love and respect and grace. In Hebrews chapter 7, it tells us that Jesus couldn't be a high priest in the Levitical system because he wasn't from the tribe of Levi. Do you think that had anything to do with his worth or his essence? God had specific roles for people, and the Levites were, were those who were the priests. It didn't, it didn't mean that all other roles were insignificant. It just meant that that was their role. Role distinctions are not value judgments. Look again at 1 Corinthians 11 and 3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of woman, and God is the head of Christ. So if we're going to say that men are worth more than women, then we have to turn around and say that God is more valuable than Jesus, right? Based on this, that's not the case. God and Jesus are one, right? It is vitally important that we obey God by carrying out the roles that have been assigned to men and women. But those roles don't define our essence or our worth. Men, you are not more valuable than the women. And women, you are not more valuable than the men. We are all equal in the sight of God. We all have the same essence and worth. It's just that God has placed us in different seats on the bus. I want you to look at another passage with me. This one is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Beginning in verse 34, it reads, The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to subject themselves, just as the law also says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? I bring this up because in our efforts to respond to those who would like to open up leadership within the church to anyone and everyone, we go too far a lot of times. And we become illogical and unreasonable in our arguments. And we point out 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and we say, look, woman's not even to speak in the assembly. That shows you her place. Okay, if keep silent there in the Greek means that she is to never speak, then every woman here is violating that command every Sunday when we worship and they sing. The word segeo there does not mean that they can never speak. Segeo does not apply to a woman asking a question in Bible class. It doesn't apply to a woman reading scripture in Bible class. That's not what segeo means. Segeo is not talking about never, ever speaking. You've got to consider context here. You've got to consider what was going on and what Paul is approaching here. Apparently, there were some aggressive women that were speaking out and that were trying to take charge. And Paul is saying, look, look, look. It's not how this works. You've got to understand. You're overstepping your bounds a little bit here. That's not how this works. And Paul is dealing with an issue here. 
In 1 Corinthians 14, we find that the one who has the gift of speaking in tongues is to keep silent if he has no interpreter. If a brother is speaking and another receives a more current revelation, then the former is to keep silent. And then we see that the women are to keep silent. The first two prohibitions demand silence only in the matters being discussed by Paul. They forbid, they do not forbid, I should say, one to speak in any and every situation, even as it applies to women. Paul is saying that they are, Paul is not saying that they are never to speak. He is saying that they are to keep silent when it comes to to usurping a man's authority. His instruction is for a woman not to occupy a public position of teaching or preaching of which she exercises authority over a man. Same thing as what he taught in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12. Now there's some who take matters even further by stating that a woman uh, violates her silence when she makes a comment in, in Bible class or when, or when she you know, wants to ask a question. That is not what is being talked about. You know, 1 Corinthians 14, 35 and 36 reads, If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? In other words, the woman is resolved to learn nothing at church. She is to keep silent and never ask a question. She is to remain ignorant, at least at church. Now, when she gets home, she can ask her husband. But what if she doesn't have a husband? Well, then she has to remain ignorant for the rest of her life. She can't go home and ask her husband because she doesn't have a husband. Therefore, she is doomed to ignorance. You think that's what Paul is trying to say. God never intended for us to throw out our brain when we go to the Bible. You've got to be logical and reasonable here. Segeo doesn't mean that she is to keep silent in any and every situation. That she can never ask a question. That she can never make a comment. Apparently, there was a definite problem in the Corinthian church with women trying to speak above and over the men and trying to take over. And Paul is attempting to put a, an end to such behavior. The church has, has really shot herself in the foot a lot on this issue. In an effort to be biblical, we've also become illogical and unreasonable. For instance, I was at a, at a brotherhood conference one time and they had a panel of preachers, all respected men and scholars that were on stage and they were, they were being asked questions. Questions were submitted by the audience. And somebody submitted the question, can a woman teach a young boy in Bible class if he's been baptized? And one preacher responded, absolutely not. Nope. He's a Christian. Woman's not to exercise authority over a, over a man. And I thought to myself, what made him a man? So a nine-year-old boy that gets baptized or even a 10, 11-year-old boy that gets baptized is now all of a sudden a man when he comes out of the water? He knows very little about the Bible. And we have someone like Carolyn Atkins who knows a whole lot about the Bible, but she can't teach him. That makes no sense. I have three children. One of them has come through Oldham Lane. The other two are going to come through Oldham Lane. One of them's 18 right now, one of them's 17, and I still know of a lot of women in this congregation that I have a whole lot more knowledge than they do, and I want them to learn from those women. Because if you have knowledge, you need to learn, right? Men, women alike. What makes them a man? Just the fact that they were baptized? So we say that, and we apply it to other things too, right? So he's been baptized. Now all of a sudden, the teacher doesn't have any authority over him at school. 
Nope, she's usurping her authority. Now he's above her. He comes home, mom can't make him mind because he's a Christian now. He's a man. She's usurping his authority if she tries to make him mind or if she grounds him or anything like that. Again, that's illogical. That's unreasonable, folks. Does baptism make an 11-year-old boy a man? The answer is no. And we could get into the flexibility of the use of the New Testament terms for boy and minor and man, but I don't think we have to go that far. This does not classify as usurping authority. And again, we've got to stop shooting ourselves in the foot here. I want you to notice what Paul writes in Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Oh, if we could just take this passage, men and women alike, and, and, and internalize this and live by it. Because I think a lot of these issues would die if we lived like this. This wasn't about Jesus' essence or worth. He chose to willingly humble himself, to empty himself, to be like one of us, to wash feet, to just serve. I have a theory, and I think it's a pretty good one. But when a man or a woman pushes for a position of authority within the church, I automatically think they're not qualified. When they are pushing wholeheartedly, I deserve to be in that spot, I think, no, you don't. <laughs> because in my humble experience of 17 years, I have found the best leaders in the church were men that had their head down and were serving, and people tapped them on the shoulder and said, hey, we would like for you to be an elder or a deacon. And they said, I don't know if I'm qualified for that. I, don't, I, I mean, they humbly responded with, I, I mean, I guess I'd think about it, but I don't know if I'm worthy of that. The people I get really leery of are the people who are pushing and trying to bully their way into a position. We're seeing that on the women's side and still see it somewhat on the men's side as well. That's a red flag. How about we all just put our head down and serve? How about if we decide that we're going to just empty ourselves, that we're going to follow the example of Jesus, and we're going to put our head down, and we're just going to go to work? And if somebody in the leadership of the church sees that and says, hey, we think that you would make a fine elder, or this congregation here has, has put your name forward because they think that you would make a fine deacon, then we say, either yay or nay on that. But we're putting our head down and we're serving. Instead of trying to push for a better position or trying to take someone else's seat. Take a lesson from Jesus. Although he was equal to God, he emptied himself and he served. And may we all do the very same thing. Because we're all equal. There's no debating that. We're all equal in the sight of God. There is no distinction in our essence or our worth. Our roles are different. That's it. That's it. So let's just do our job, right? Let's keep our head down. Let's go to work. I hope this has cleared some things up. I hope that it's approached the issue in a way that's balanced and logical and reasonable. If you have any further questions, feel free to email me or come see me, but uh, hopefully it's been worthwhile. Luke's going to lead us in a song in just a moment. I want to encourage you that if you have 
a need tonight that we can help you with. If you're struggling with something, you need the prayers of this church family. We want to be a we want to be a group that surrounds you and rallies around you and helps you. If you're somebody that's been contemplating baptism, you're ready to put on Christ tonight in baptism, then, then do that. As we say every week, don't leave here without being right with God. Let us help you. Come now as we stand and as we pray.